Please note, rewards offered are subject to change or expire. To the author's knowledge, reward amounts are current and valid as of this episode's air date and may be subject to terms and conditions. Please confirm all reward details with the relevant case authority listed in the show notes. Welcome back to Reward Offered, a true crime podcast looking at unsolved Australian cases that have financial rewards for relevant information. I'm your host, Amanda. Thanks for joining me again for episode two, as we resume our dive into the unsolved murders of Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans. In today's episode, we'll continue covering the official theory of what happened to the girls. We'll learn what was found at the crime scene and what the autopsy results showed. We'll take a look at what was the conclusion of the first inquest, held in 1985 and then moved to the second inquest, looking at witness testimony and the evidence presented as implicating the persons of interest. Throughout the episode, we'll also be talking about the possible issues with some of the evidence as we work through it. Remember to keep evaluating what the evidence being presented is telling you. And with that, let's get back to the case. If any of the details of this case cause you distress, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or a relevant crisis support service in your local area. When we left off yesterday, the girls' remains had just been discovered in a paddock at Murphy's Creek. The area was secluded, with no residences within a kilometre of the site. Police did, however, speak with everyone at the houses found closest to the location. This canvassing revealed that a local man, who was employed with a feedlot, could indeed have come incredibly close to discovering the girls back in 1974. He said that in November of 1974, he was in the area scouting for three head of cattle that had escaped the neighbouring property. He recalled a strong odour that led him to believe at that time that one of the animals had most likely died. However, after searching the vicinity, he failed to locate the source of the smell and left. When later showing police where he had been searching, it was established that he had more than likely come within 50 metres of discovering the girls' bodies. This missed opportunity could have made a huge difference in how the case unfolded. Obviously, had the girls' remains been discovered so soon after their deaths, a mere several weeks, it is likely a more effective investigation could and would have been undertaken. Once the crime scene had been identified, The area was thoroughly searched by both plainclothes and uniformed police, along with army personnel with mine detectors. The mine detectors were deployed specifically for the purposes of locating a ring that Lorraine was known to be wearing. Images of this ring had become a focal point while police were appealing for information during the time the women were missing. There was some scattering of bones over an area of approximately 20 square metres, however two largely intact skeletons could still be identified. According to the coroner's report, in both cases, extensively decayed jeans were found over leg bones and underwear was found, quote, generally in place with, for example, bra clips fastened, end quote. Now, I really wish it was a little clearer as to the positioning of underwear, as given the amount of time that has passed, the position of clothing is likely to be one of our only reliable indicators, short of an eyewitness after so much time, as to whether this crime involved the girls being raped. I think it's fair to say that the bra doesn't tell us much, and given the fact that whoever murdered these women made absolutely zero attempt to conceal the bodies, I don't foresee the perpetrators bothering to reclothe the girls after raping them. Although it is also possible that they were raped before being brought to this location. In the very least, it seems there was no evidence to suggest that they were raped at this location before being murdered. Eric Wilson seems to be firm in his belief that Lorraine and Wendy were raped before being killed. Perhaps he knows something I don't, but based on the information provided in the coroner's findings and his books, I just don't see the evidence to support it. Who knows? Maybe I'm just eager to hope that the girls were spared that, on top of everything else that they endured. I will say that many believe this crime is linked to several others that involved the rape, bludgeoning and murder of women in the nearby Gold Coast area between the years of 1972 and 1976. The similarities are blatantly obvious, but I will note that in those cases, the women who were known to have been raped 
to my knowledge, were found only partially clothed, unlike Lorraine and Wendy. According to the coroner's report, in the case of Lorraine and Wendy, loops of cord were found around bone legs in a configuration making it appear that their legs had been hobbled, the cord tied around each ankle, and linked together. Effectively, they had been hogtied, in a way similar to a method used by pig hunters to secure their prey. The synthetic cord has been described as being not as thick as the nylon used for clotheslines of the time, but more like that used in blinds. It is believed it may also have been similar to cord used to prepare the slab of bacon before it was sent out to be cured, used in the cutting room of the boning operation at abattoirs at the time. Both skeletons were found only 5 to 7 metres apart. Some of the personal effects were scattered about, but there were also items that seemed grouped together. These items were described as looking as though they had been dumped out of an upturned bag or suitcase, and were still laying there undisturbed in a pile. There is contradictions as to what Lorraine was found wearing. The coroner's report insinuates she is found wearing the cheesecloth shirt she has on when she leaves Susan's, yet in his book, Eric indicates that she is wearing a medium, grey t-shirt with either a Darwin or Northern Territory motif on the front. He goes on to explain that it's believed the t-shirt being worn by Wendy was the exact same shirt, just blue. So I'm unsure which is the correct top Lorraine is wearing when her body is discovered, but I believe it to be at least one of those two. Personal effects located at the scene included cigarette lighters, toothbrushes, hairbrushes and clothing. There was also jewellery found including an astrological cancer sign pendant and two rings. Items never recovered but known to have been with them are the girls' wallets, a bank book and a checkbook and cash. Eric states that Lorraine had withdrawn $300 from a bank branch in Brisbane the Friday morning before they went missing in order to pay the mechanic's invoice in Gundawindi. That's just shy of $2,800 in today's money. A lot of cash to be carrying around. Even if they thought the vehicle wasn't going to be ready as they passed through Gundawindi over the weekend, perhaps Lorraine had the money on hand to pay the mechanic so that the invoice would be paid when her parents later made the trip to collect the car. In any case, the perpetrators may not have been interested in the women's jewellery, but they no doubt eagerly took the money. The gold ring found, images of which were publicly circulated during the search for the women, was identified by Mrs Wilson as belonging to Lorraine. According to Eric, it was located approximately 4 centimetres under the soil near Lorraine's body. The other ring is very likely one of the most crucial pieces of evidence in this entire case. It is described in the coroner's report as being a white metal dress ring, commonly called a signet ring and usually worn by men. This ring was not identified by either of the women's families as belonging to them. Eric says it was located approximately 5 centimetres under the soil and about 30 centimetres distance from Lorraine's ring. It is noted in the coroner's report that Wayne Hilton's ex-wife, Royline, told Detective Rouge that Wayne did used to wear a similar ring, but that she believed it had been gold, not silver, and that to her recollection, he still had possession of his ring when they separated in 1979. The skull identified as belonging to Lorraine Wilson was mostly intact. There was, however, major fractures focused to the left, back, side of the head. The forensic pathologist who attended the scene and examined the skull indicated that only one to three blows would have been necessary to cause what he believed would have been quickly fatal injuries. Given these conclusions were made using medical knowledge and practices from the 1970s, I'd be interested in hearing whether a pathologist in 2021 would concur with the injury assessment after reviewing the autopsy information. Wendy's skull revealed a very different scenario. It showed extensive injuries to the facial area, the top of the head, and both sides of the head. These injuries had resulted in severe fractures to her skull. The multiple injuries indicating that a large number of separate blows had caused the evident fractures. It is stated in the coroner's report that Wendy had not only received many more blows than would have been necessary to kill her, but that she was, horrifically and literally, quote, bashed to a pulp, end quote. We can immediately identify that Wendy bore the brunt of this attack. According to the evidence, Lorraine's death occurs seemingly, and thankfully, quite quickly. The same may not be the case for Wendy. As we consider the evidence and statements that people will give, this uneven brutality exhibited between the two women needs to be bookmarked. Why was Wendy attacked so viciously? Why was she the focus of so much anger? If the pathologist's findings are correct, this is textbook overkill. But why? 
DNA profiling is both a concept and method, were discovered on accident in 1984 by Dr Alec Jeffries, a genetic researcher at the University of Leicestershire in the UK. While examining ways to trace genes through family lineages in an attempt to understand inherited diseases, Mr Jeffries had a eureka moment when he noticed the individual genetic samples under the microscope, which were made up of DNA bars, each had different bar codes, but more importantly, that they could be precisely identified as belonging to any given individual. He also realised the ability to establish kinships when he noticed the bands of DNA given by one of his assistants were a composite of her mother's and father's. This is the original discovery, which formed the basis for the process which would come to be known as genetic genealogy, which would be made famous by the identification of the Golden State Killer in 2018. It was Dr Jeffries who would be the first to utilise DNA in a criminal investigation in 1986 in Leicestershire. That case involved the rape and murder of two women, one in 1983 and another in 1986. Dr Jeffries utilised genetic fingerprinting and DNA to match fingerprints and semen stains collected from both of the crime scenes, linking the two cases. The US would first use DNA evidence in 1987 to convict a Florida rapist, it's always Florida, named Tommy Lee Andrews, who was sentenced to 22 years for his multiple rapes. Surprisingly, though, the FBI didn't start using DNA testing until as late as 1998. The earliest evidence I could find of DNA being used in a criminal proceeding in Australia was during the sexual assault case of a perpetrator named Desmond John Appleby in the Australian Capital Territory in 1989. He was convicted, by the way. Given Lorraine and Wendy were murdered in 1974, the methods of collection of evidence would likely have been far from ideal to preserve relevant genetic material. I'm also yet to confirm exactly what, if any, physical evidence still remains in custody. Remember the silver men's dress ring? The only possible perpetrator-linked object known to have been left at the crime scene? It was either lost or disposed of by police. Interestingly enough, to my knowledge, police have never showed the ring, nor a photo of it publicly. Is this one of their holdback pieces of evidence? Possibly. But how can anyone be expected to identify who may have been known to wear that ring if they don't know what the ring looked like? According to Eric... The senior detective initially handling the case, Frank Swindles, had told Lorraine's mum, Betty, that because it was found in Lorraine's possession, it would be returned to the family along with her other personal belongings. He was seen to put both Lorraine's gold ring and the silver dress ring into an envelope and place a seal on the envelope. However, years later when they finally received her belongings in the post and opened the sealed envelope, instead of finding two rings, they found Lorraine's ring and in the place of the dress ring, oddly, a piece of electrical conduit, which is basically a hard piece of plastic piping. Eric claims Betty reported the missing ring, but nothing ever came of it, and that, at least at the time of the publication of his second book, he had never received any plausible explanation as to what had happened to the ring or how it had managed to go missing while in police custody. Fortunately, when the girl's remains were discovered and police were trying to identify the items found with them, both families were shown the ring to see if they recognised it. They didn't. But this brief encounter with the ring would allow the Wilson family to collectively pool their memories in order for Eric to include a sketch of what they believe the ring resembled in his first book, The Echo of Silent Screams. I'll include a photo of this sketch on our social media. It's important to remember that this is far from an ideal way to identify this ring. Those who saw the ring did so decades before recalling the memory of it. They also saw it during an incredibly emotional and stressful time given their loved ones had just been discovered and identified. Eric states the depiction is probably not entirely accurate. Perhaps it's better to just think about the ring broadly. It appeared to be a men's dress ring. It was silver and it had a large green gem. In his book, Eric states that they believe the gemstone to be chrysoprase, which is a variety of quartz. Although it's important to note that this has never been confirmed, if correct... He goes on to explain that the varied green colorations of these gems is due to the tiny particles of hydrated nickel silicate which become lodged in the body of the gemstone when it first solidifies. According to him, the town of Marlborough, located north of Rockhampton in Queensland, has been the source of the world's finest specimens of this particular gemstone since the 60s, as has Wingalina in Western Australia, though to a much lesser extent. Someone knows this ring, or remembers it, and who wore it. After the publicity of the discovery of the girl's remains and appeals for information, 
hundreds of tips flowed into police. In July of 1976, a reward of $100,000 was posted in the case but didn't prompt any more witnesses or information. The coroner's report states that hundreds of leads were run out, revealing nothing, but it also acknowledges that there were some reports that were not followed up, which could have given rise to more productive results, had they been. Also in July of 1976, an anonymous male caller advised police that two brothers named Hilton were in the habit of picking up schoolgirls around Toowoomba for sex. One girl had reported to the caller that when she resisted, she had been tied up and raped. The caller claimed the Hilton men were associated with a man named Hunt. Apparently attempts were made to identify these suspects, although it doesn't appear that anyone named Hilton or Hunt was identified and interviewed at the time about any involvement in the deaths of Lorraine and Wendy. Little progress seems to have been made after 1980 when the initial influx of leads and information dries up. In January of 1985, detectives on the case conclude that the investigation is at a standstill and prepare a report for the coroner. The conclusion in this report, which is presented to the coroner, was that after a very active and concentrated investigation since their actual disappearance, no evidence had been obtained that would identify any offender in the murders. Although not comfortable with offering any suggestions of why it may be the case, I do feel comfortable saying that the first inquest undertaken in 1985 and the case presented to the coroner were lacklustre. This initial inquest opened on the 20th of June 1985 in Toowoomba, in front of a local magistrate coroner. A local constable assisting the coroner tendered the police file and photographic evidence, but no witnesses were called. The principal investigator of the case, Inspector Frank Swindles, had since been reassigned to Bundaberg, so the case was adjourned and later resumed before a local magistrate coroner there. Mr Swindles gave evidence as to where the bodies had been found, an overview of the case details, and confirmed that there were no definite suspects. He said the investigation was ongoing, was asked no questions, and no additional witnesses were called. The inquest returned to Toowoomba on the 28th of November 1985. The findings from this initial inquest confirmed the identity of the women, that they had died at Murphy's Creek, and that their deaths occurred, quote, probably around the 12th of October 1974, end quote. There is no indication as to why that coroner settled on the date of the 12th. The only significance I can see for the 12th is that that was the date that the women were actually reported to police as missing, even though they hadn't been seen since the 6th. The coroner reiterated the circumstances under which the girls left Brisbane, and the scenario of how the remains were found. He accepted the causes of death for both women to be skull fractures, and acknowledged that no new evidence had surfaced in spite of media campaigns and a substantial reward being offered in the case. He stated the investigation was indeed at a standstill, and that should any fresh evidence arise, the case could be reopened at the direction of the Minister for Justice. The coroner overseeing the first inquest concluded, quote, Lorraine Ruth Wilson and Wendy Joy Evans were murdered by a person or persons unknown, end quote. In March of 1988, officers of the Toowoomba Criminal Investigation Branch, or CIB, were notified by New South Wales Police of allegations by one of their inmates pertaining to another inmate's confession that he and another person had picked up two nurses and raped and murdered them. The informant, as well as the other two men, usually lived in the Toowoomba area, which was also the location of the alleged crime, hence New South Wales Police forwarding the information to the local CIB. At this time in 1988, Detective Senior Constable Paul Rouge worked on the investigation and is said to have pursued all lines of inquiry over the next several years before he was transferred to Gladstone. In 2004, Detective Inspector Kerry Johnson was assigned to the cold case of Lorraine and Wendy to review when he was not focused on pressing new work. The 2013 coroner indicates that Detective Johnson exhaustively reviewed all the case material and re-interviewed all the key witnesses and suspects that were still alive. In 2012, Kerry Johnson is also transferred and a Detective Senior Constable Christy Schmidt is assigned responsibility of the case and investigation. Detective Schmidt is also said to have made further inquiries and written her own detailed report. The 2013 coroner, Michael Barnes, commends all three detectives in his findings for their efforts in the investigation. The story behind how the second inquest comes about is a testament to the way in which news media can not only positively impact the trajectory of a case, pushing it in the direction that best serves the interests of the victims, their families and the wider community, but also how media exposure and the resulting pressure can most certainly influence government decisions. 
After 38 years, Lorraine's brother and her mum, Betty, decide to write to the state coroner to request another coronial inquest into the murders. After five weeks and no response, Eric phones Paula Donman, a newspaper crime reporter who he had met while she was covering the girls' murders, and asks for her help. By this time, Paula was now a producer for Channel 7 Brisbane. Channel 7 aired a segment not long after that that gave a rundown of the case and queried why there had been no response to an ageing mother's last wish, that before her own death arrived, her daughter's case be reviewed. Detective Inspector Kerry Johnson, who was in charge of the case at the time, was interviewed. According to Eric's second book, in the preceding decade of investigation, there had been new witness statements secured, and from 16 persons of interest nominated, four to five potential suspects had been identified. These revelations, combined with public sentiment over the case, caused the seemingly seized wheels of justice holding up this case to begin to turn. But there were several more bumps to overcome. Four weeks later, Eric finally receives a response from the state coroner, Michael Barnes. It's not a great start. Due to the deaths having occurred prior to the 1st of December 2003, and the initial inquest having been convened under the Coroner's Act 1958, the state coroner didn't currently hold the power to reopen the previous inquest. That action could only be performed by the Attorney General. With not only the public on side, but also a recommendation from the Queensland Police Service for a coronial inquest to be undertaken, there was no way the AG could refuse the inquest. Until he did. Eric received a phone call from Paula, advising him that his mother's request had been denied. A letter was issued by the AG, Jared Blasey, I think that's how you pronounce it, explaining that he would not be directing the state coroner to reopen the inquest as he did not believe investigations since 1985 had provided any additional pertinent information, nor was he convinced that reopening the inquest would result in a different finding being made. Obviously, this was confusing to most, given the new witnesses, persons of interest and suspects that had apparently been identified. Once again, Channel 7 Brisbane airs a segment on the 6 o'clock news, this time questioning the Attorney-General's decision. And not far behind Channel 7, ready to also strike, was the print media. Another individual Eric had crossed paths with during coverage of his sister's case was a journalist by the name of Warren Gibbs. By the time Eric contacted him in 2012, asking for assistance, just as he had asked of Paula, Warren was now a senior editor for one of the Murdoch groups of newspapers in Sydney. Full-page articles ran in both the Sydney Morning Herald Weekend Edition and the Sunday Telegraph, two of the largest newspapers in the country at the time, and still. The girls may have died in Queensland, but they had lived in New South Wales. Both states pursued the story rigorously, with many journalists hounding the AG's office regarding the matter. After weeks of mounting pressure from TV and print media, the public and him, Eric picks up his phone one afternoon to find a voicemail from the AG himself. He returns the call, and the two men hold a brief, courteous discussion. A couple of hours later, Eric receives a final call from the AG to advise him that he was reversing the decision and that it was now in the public's best interest to hold the inquest. Furthermore, he said he would direct it to be convened at the earliest possible time. Unfortunately, Betty wouldn't get to see her dying wish honoured. In a cruel twist of fate, merely days after sending her initial letter to the state coroner, Betty had passed away at their family home in Dubbo. Eric and Betty Wilson had done what they set out to achieve, though, to get another day in court for Lorraine and Wendy, where all the current evidence could be heard and evaluated in hopes of justice finally being served. Across the second inquest, leave to appear was granted to Desmond Hilton, Alan Neil Laurie, Terence James O'Neill, and later granted to Miss Tracy Hilton, the daughter of Wayne Robert Hilton, who was appearing on behalf and in defence of her deceased father. Leave to appear just means that they're offered the opportunity to appear at the inquest in order to challenge any evidence presented against them, or in the case of Tracy, against her father, although she wasn't given that opportunity till late into the inquest. 31 witnesses gave evidence throughout the inquest, and as can often be the case, the inquest itself prompted further witnesses to come forward. Their information was also considered by the coroner. When making a determination based on the evidence presented, the coroner is to implement a framework known as the Brigginshaw Sliding Scale. Established in the 1938 Australian case of Brigginshaw versus Brigginshaw, this framework operates under the proposition that the more serious the factual matter is, the higher the standard of proof that is required. According to the coroner's report, as a result of the publicity generated by the inquest, many women not connected to one another came forward and made detailed claims of themselves and others, 
being raped and assaulted by members of the Laurie and Hilton families. He indicates that many of the rapes were not reported to police, and that the ones that were, were ineffectively investigated. The coroner goes on to say that some of the statements described violence, degrading behaviour, and sexual abuse to various women over protracted periods of time by a group of men belonging to the Hilton and Laurie families and their associates. In an inquest, the coroner is not bound by the rules of evidence and may admit any evidence he or she considers may help establish any of the matters that fall within the scope of the inquest. They must, however, observe the rules of procedural fairness and act judiciously. This balancing act required the coroner to decide whether it was unfair for the subjects of these allegations to have regard to the untested evidence of these witnesses, especially given many of the subjects could not be given an opportunity to respond, as they had since died. He determined that given the similarities between many of the victims' reports, some of whom gave evidence at the inquest and were cross-examined, it was permissible to have regard to all of the information as corroboration of the sworn and tested evidence that at the time the women were murdered, a group of men were in the habit of taking young women from the Toowoomba area out into the bush and forcing them to have sex through threats of violence or actual violence. The coroner states in his findings that a number of witnesses appeared at the inquest and gave evidence suggesting various members of the Hilton and Laurie families were involved in the deaths of Lorraine and Wendy. He says that his conclusion about this group of men taking women into the bush and raping them and beating them is based on the following evidence from witnesses. The first alleged rape victim to speak was Anne. I'm not sure if these witnesses are appearing under a pseudonym or not. Anne says that in 1974, at the age of 19, she was raped by Shorty Lawrence and another man. In the coroner's report, the surname Lawrence, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, has bracket sick bracket after it because the court made the assumption that Anne was in fact referring to Shorty Laurie and had simply misspoken. She didn't know the type of car, only that it was a light-coloured sedan and that she had gotten into the vehicle on a Saturday night in Toowoomba CBD after accepting their offer of a ride home. They drove her down behind the Downlands College. Shorty locked the doors and the other man got into the back seat. After both men raped Anne, they dropped her across the road from her house and drove off. After telling her father what had happened, Anne's story was reported to police and she was examined by a government medical officer and her clothes were taken as evidence. She never heard anything more from police about the matter and was too frightened to chase it up. She said that after her incident, she heard rumours that it was common knowledge that these men had done the same thing to many other girls. There is zero indication in the coroner's report of who the other man is that Anne is talking about, but she goes on to describe Shorty, saying, quote, I remember Shorty having blondish, shoulder-length hair, a slim build, and he was of average height, end quote. In 1969, at age 16, the next alleged victim, Gail, says she came into contact with Ian Laurie, Gordon Laurie, and Shorty Laurie. She tells a similar story of being offered a lift home, but also mentions that in the rear of the vehicle, there were no car door handles or window winders on the inside, which made it impossible to escape the back seat once you were there. When queried about the absence of handles and winders, she says she was told by the men that they were repairing the doors. Gail reports being taken out to a bush paddock at Highfields Road between Toowoomba and Highfields. She says the men plied her with booze and then took advantage of her, removing her pants and pouring alcohol on their old fellas before taking turns raping her. The last alleged victim who spoke at the inquest was Carrie Ann. In 1974, after a tumultuous upbringing and conflict with her stepmother, she ran away and was picked up by a truck driver in the area of Gundawindi. She said of the truck driver, quote, I think his name was Laurie. I think Laurie was his first name. I just knew him as Shorty. He drove me in his truck to an isolated spot and repeatedly raped me. End quote. Carrie Ann claims that after this initial incident, she stayed with associates of her rapist and that members of what she called the Hilton Gang also raped her on numerous occasions. She named other people, including Kingsley Hunt, as also having participated. She made claims that a gang comprised of men from the Hilton, Laurie and other families prowled Toowoomba and Gundawindi seeking out women for sex, that they would regularly convene overnight parties around campfires in a river bend near Gundawindi, but that these parties were also from time to time convened at Murphy's Creek. She recalled, quote, I can never remember being shoved into the boot, but I certainly can remember that happened with a couple of local girls. One image keeps coming up and it's of a blonde-haired girl, my age, 14 or 15 at the time, with the ringlets, end quote. 
She gives no more identifying information of these other supposed victims. I find Carrie Ann's story difficult to comprehend. My biggest concern is why would someone continue to stay with a group of men who are repeatedly raping her? She makes no mention of being forcibly held against her will. So the natural question is why didn't she just run away again? Like she'd run away from home. She obviously did choose to leave at some point, and I understand that it's not that simple, but there are many factors that could have played in her decision to remain in a dangerous situation if her story is true, but that doesn't remove the presence of the query. The only individual to identify Wayne Hilton on the record as having raped her is Wayne's former wife, who gave a statement to police in 1990 which said, quote, He would get very violent when drinking. He would fight anyone and had no qualms about hitting women, end quote. She went on to say that, quote, Wayne was very active sexually, both by day and at night time, and whether he was drunk or he was sober, whenever he wanted sex, he would just take it, whether I consented or not. I resisted him on some occasions, but he just punched me and held me down and forced me into sex, end quote. Kenneth Inslee was the New South Wales inmate who provided information regarding another prisoner confessing about murdering two women. He is reported to have sometimes resided in Toowoomba, but as previously indicated, was in 1998 an inmate of a prison in Malabar, New South Wales. In October of that year, Detective Rouge interviewed Mr Inslee and asked him to relay what he had been told. According to Kenneth Inslee, while he was in prison in Pallon Creek, Queensland in 1984, he was involved in a dispute with Trevor Hilton and afterwards was told by Mr Hilton that he and a man named Donnie Laurie had killed two people but he was given no more information at that time. He goes on to claim, however, that several years later when he was living at Westbrook near Toowoomba, both Trevor Hilton and Donnie Laurie visited him at his home, and after they'd been drinking for some time, the men began arguing. Mr Inslee claims that Trevor told him about how he and Donnie had picked up two nurses from Toowoomba Hospital and killed them. Donnie tried to stop Trevor from speaking, but he wouldn't. Kenneth says that Trevor revealed, quote, We screwed them and killed them. End quote. And when asked where that had happened, said, quote, on the dirt road to the right going down Murphy's Creek Road. End quote. Mr. Inslee claims that he stopped Mr. Hilton from continuing as he didn't want to hear any more about it, and reports that Donnie Laurie was very upset by what Trevor Hilton was saying, to the point of crying. According to the coroner, Mr. Inslee repeated these allegations at the 2013 inquest, although he had to be constantly reminded of his previous statement. He was on several medications at the time, including receiving injections for paranoid schizophrenia, which he'd been diagnosed with since the age of 15. In November of 1988, Detective Rouge interviewed Trevor Hilton in relation to the allegations made by Kenneth Inslee. Not only did Mr Hilton deny any involvement in the nurse's murders, he went on to disclose that he had in fact been in prison at the time of the murders, with authorities saying records do indicate that he was an inmate of Pallon Creek Prison from July 1974 until the 2nd of November, 1974, meaning not only was he not guilty of murdering the girls, but he had not been present at the murders either. Interestingly though, in this same interview, Trevor Hilton does offer that in June of 1988, an associate named Donnie Laurie had come to his residence in Toowoomba and claimed another of their acquaintances, Shirley Withers, had told police that Donnie and Trevor were responsible for killing the two nurses. Trevor said that Donnie was very upset and was acting strangely, saying that he wanted to leave Toowoomba. Mr Hilton claims that after he denied assistance to Donnie, Donnie left in a cab, headed for the home of Trevor Hilton's uncle, Desmond Hilton. Just a quick side note here, the coroner's report is wrong about Desmond being Trevor Hilton's uncle. The two men were only ever related to one another by marriage. Des's mother was married to Trevor's brother. Trevor Hilton is listed in the coroner's report as being either a cousin or uncle of Boogie Hilton. He is, in fact, Boogie's uncle. Trevor has also claimed that on a number of occasions, he had seen Shorty Laurie, Angie Laurie and Boogie Hilton assault women and push them into cars. He said they would carry tyre levers, wheel spanners and or baseball bats in their cars to use as weapons. He claims that the men would openly skite about forcing women to have sex with them. Later that same month, Detective Rouge would interview Donnie Laurie about the allegations. The only information in the coroner's report about this interview states that Donnie denied being involved in the murders and also denied ever having been to the scene where the girls' bodies were discovered. Desmond Hilton is listed in the coroner's report as being related to Wayne Boogie Hilton and Trevor Hilton, 
We've already discussed his relationship to Trevor through marriage, but he was in fact Wayne's cousin. It is said he associated with the extended Laurie family, as well as Boogie and Trevor. When first interviewed in 1989, Desmond said that in 1974, he was staying with Donnie Laurie in the flat next to Wayne Hilton. At the time of this initial interview, he made no mention of having any knowledge relating to the murders of Lorraine and Wendy. Now, the time frame of this next bit of information doesn't really align in my mind, but it's stated in the coroner's findings, so I'll share it as it's written. According to the coroner's report, subsequent information from Desmond Hilton was only relayed to police after a woman named Shirley Withers, at some stage in the 1980s, reported to police, or at least threatened to report to police, that Donnie Laurie and Trevor Hilton were responsible for the murders. I'm not sure how he can have an initial interview in 1989 with apparently no knowledge of the murders, and then come forward subsequently, supposedly prompted by Shirley's claim made at some point in the 80s. Surely if he's prompted by her claim in the 80s, he would mention it in 1989. But in any case, according to the coroner's report, Desmond Hilton claims that Donnie Laurie and Trevor Hilton came to his house and he corroborated aspects of Trevor Hilton's account of Donnie being very upset and having left for Inglewood in a cab. He supposedly also supported Trevor Hilton's claim that Donnie Laurie was very worried by the threat of Shirley Withers going to police. One major discrepancy between Trevor and Desmond's accounts of an upset Donnie Laurie is that, according to the coroner's report, in Trevor's version, he witnesses Donnie upset at his house and then Donnie leaves in a cab, bound for Inglewood to stay at Desmond's house. In Desmond's version, Donnie and Trevor are both at his house when this conversation unfolds, and then Donnie leaves in a cab, bound for Inglewood. So, either Desmond didn't live at Inglewood at the time, or Donnie took a very short cab ride. But either way, their stories don't match. And as far as I can tell, this is the first point in which Donnie Laurie's name is introduced into the investigation, by both Trevor and Desmond Hilton. In his 1999 interview with Detective Kasuski, Desmond Hilton now stated that he knew Alan Shorty Laurie, Alan Ungi Laurie, James O'Neill and Larry Charles to be responsible for the murders, and that Wayne Boogie Hilton and Donnie Laurie were responsible for going to look at the bodies the following day to confirm the two nurses were in fact dead. He said that the morning after the murders had occurred, Shorty, Ungi, Larry and Jimmy arrived at Donnie's flat in Evelyn Laurie's green E.H. Holden. Just a side note, Evelyn Laurie is Ungi Laurie's mother. He said that they were in a hurry to clean up the car, and that while this was being done, Donnie Laurie and Wayne Hilton went down to Murphy's Creek. He further claims that Donnie Laurie had blood on him, and that he went to Paddy Hilton's place to wash up. It, it doesn't matter who Paddy Hilton is, it's not, it's not relevant. It'll just confuse you if I try and explain every single person in this case. Uh, don't feel bad if you're already confused. These are huge families complicated by marriages and intergenerational dating. I will actually, I'll put a copy of what I believe is the most thorough and accurate family tree available on our social media so that you can see just how complex it is. It really isn't a family tree so much as it's like a, a family forest. Desmond Hilton was interviewed once again in 2008 by Detective Kerry Johnson and his account of events in this interview was as follows. Shorty, Angie, Larry and Jimmy arrived this time at his house, whereas in the 1990 interview he indicated that this had occurred at Donnie Laurie's flat, and that the four men said that, quote, they'd given two girls a hiding down the... Actually, they didn't say Murphy's Creek, they just said that they'd given two girls a hiding down the bottom of the range, end quote. He took this to mean that they were talking about what he says they'd done every weekend for many years, taking girls out, raping them, giving them a hiding, and leaving them once they'd gotten what they wanted. He claims that Wayne Hilton and Donnie Laurie went down to check on the girls, and that upon returning, they too said that the two girls had received a hiding. He says he was asked to clean the green Holden, and noticed a smear of blood all the way across the back seat, which looked as though someone had been dragged across it. He also claims in this interview that Donnie Laurie washed blood off his hands when he returned to the tap, although there's no mention of Paddy Hilton's house this time, and that Donnie told him sometime later that he had taken a ring from one of the girls down at the scene and had sold it at the Five Ways pub for beer. As far as I'm aware, no rings belonging to the women were unaccounted for after the bodies and surrounding belongings were recovered in 1976, so Donnie couldn't have sold a ring from one of the women. Finally, in his statement, Desmond Hilton claimed he had seen Shorty Laurie showing Donnie Laurie 
how he had kicked the girls with an action of kicking and stomping on the floor. At the second inquest in 2013, however, Desmond Hilton now attempted to retract almost all of his previous statements. He could apparently no longer remember cleaning blood from the car that he said Shorty had been driving, and said that if he ever had cleaned blood from the vehicle, it might have been blood from kangaroos which had been shot by Mr Laurie. He did confirm that Shorty Laurie had a propensity for violence, and went on to claim having witnessed an incident in which Mr Laurie punched his own mother in the head, as well as another where he claimed to have seen Mr Laurie stomping on her. At the inquest there was no mention of a visit from this group of men, the cleaning of blood from their vehicle, anyone inspecting bodies at Murphy's Creek, or of anyone washing blood from their hands. According to Eric, Desmond was also specifically asked at the inquest about an incident he had supposedly witnessed in Echo Valley many years ago. Through statements in the inquest, I've come to understand that this event revolves around a story supposedly involving Boogie, Shorty and Ungie years prior. It would seem that Desmond had appeared at a Crime and Misconduct Commission, or CMC, hearing only three years earlier in 2010 and made detailed claims of an event at Echo Valley that involved a young woman being forced to have sex with Shorty and Ungie in the backseat of a car. He claimed that while this was happening, he was outside the vehicle drinking. I couldn't find any indication of what he claimed Boogie was doing while this supposedly all unfolded, but when this was raised at Lorraine and Wendy's inquest, he claimed he could no longer recall saying those things, and indicated that he'd had a rough life, been a heavy drinker for much of it, and that his memory wasn't real good as a result. It's impossible to know if this is even somewhat true, or if it's just a cover for him as he recants previous testimonies at the inquest. Also, just to note, the CMC in Queensland was reformed in 2014, and it's now called the Crime and Corruption Commission or Triple C. Another witness, Albert Galvin, claimed to be an associate of Donnie Laurie and other members of the Laurie family, as well as some of those of the Hilton family. When interviewed by police on the 15th of August 1995, he claimed Donnie Laurie, while on his deathbed in Toowoomba Hospital, told him about the murders of the two nurses. He alleges that Donnie Laurie told him that the vehicle involved was a green 1963 Ford Falcon with a white hood and blinds in the back windscreen, as well as telling him that a tomahawk was used in the killings. Although, to my knowledge, there is no evidence in the autopsy or forensic findings that would indicate any such weapon was used in the attacks on the women. Albert Galvin advised police that he believed there was three or four carloads of people involved, including Shorty Laurie, Angie Laurie, and Wayne Boogie Hilton. In a statement given not quite a year later, dated 22nd of April 1996, Albert Galvin now claimed that while on his deathbed, Donnie Laurie had told him, quote, We killed the nurses. I was there. I didn't do it. End quote. Mr. Galvin claimed that when asked why he hadn't gone to police, Donnie had replied that they would have killed him. Donnie apparently told him that the police were looking for the wrong car, that it was an XN or XL, presumably he's speaking of Ford models, bought from Fred Porter for Wayne Hilton. From what I can find, there was never an XN Ford made, but there was an XM. So again, it's either a typo or an incorrect witness statement. Another witness, Daryl Sutton, lived in Toowoomba in the 1970s. He claims to have known members of the Hilton and Laurie families and to have socialised with Boogie Hilton, although he also said that he thought his proper name was Ron or Trevor. Remember, Boogie's full name is Wayne Robert Hilton. As also mentioned, there is another individual by the name of Trevor Hilton, but he is Boogie's uncle. And Ronnie Hilton was Trevor Hilton's son, who was about four years old in 1974. Mr Sutton also claimed that he used to get around with Teddy Laurie, Shorty Laurie and Arthur Laurie and claimed that during this time, Shorty Laurie drove a light green EH model Holden belonging to his father. In a 2005 statement, and repeated again at the inquest, Mr Sutton said that on one occasion, he saw Shorty Laurie driving that vehicle and that Boogie Hilton was in the passenger seat. He stated that Boogie was crying and said aloud, quote, I didn't mean to hurt the girls. However, when Mr. Sutton tried to inquire further, Shorty apparently advised him to take no notice of Boogie. He claims to have witnessed Boogie assault both men and women on multiple occasions, saying, quote, I remember seeing him hit girls in the face and about the body. I don't know why he used to bash them. I think it was just to get his own way, to get what he wanted. He was renowned as a girl basher. Mr. Sutton claimed that Boogie would carry a tyre lever under the driver's seat of his car and allegedly told Darrell, quote, if anyone gets cheeky, that's what I use on them, end quote. Daryl Sutton clarified in his testimony at the inquest that at no time did Boogie, Shorty, nor anyone else ever make any admissions of involvement in the murders of the girls, which is certainly interesting, considering that moments after leaving the courthouse, 
He tells the waiting press the boogie had confessed to him that he'd murdered the girls. A journalist starts to question him, saying, that's not what you just said inside, and he speaks over them before walking away. I'll include the footage of this exchange outside the courthouse on our website. The coroner goes on to question the reliability of Mr Sutton's identification of Boogie Hilton, referring to his claim that Boogie had a tattoo of a snake on his left forearm, whereas Boogie's police profile only lists the tattoo of a heart with the name Roylene on his upper right bicep. Further, the coroner indicates that when Mr Sutton was shown a photo of Wayne Hilton, his only response was, quote, it definitely looks like one of the Hiltons, end quote. Neville Shum worked in the timber industry throughout the Toowoomba region through the 1970s and 80s. He was unable to identify Wayne Boogie Hilton from a photo board, but the coroner suggested that this was of little consequence as Wayne had worked for Mr Shum, quote, for a long time on and off. I don't really get the coroner's reasoning here. Personally, I would think if somebody worked for you over a longer period of time, even if only sporadically at points, you'd be more likely to be able to identify a random photo of them or at least have it look familiar, because you would have seen their face as it varied over time. But the coroner doesn't see issue with it. Mr Shum's 1989 statement reveals his claim that on a number of occasions, Boogie Hilton had told him that he was one of the persons responsible for killing the nurses at Murphy's Creek. He repeated this sentiment at the inquest, and insisted that Mr Hilton was sober at the times of his confessions. Mr Shum indicated that Boogie Hilton had told him that he and his brother who was assumed by Mr. Shum to be Trevor Hilton, had picked up two nurses and had ended up murdering them after having some trouble with them. He said Mr. Hilton also admitted that the girls had, quote, nearly got away from them. We know Trevor Hilton was in jail at the time of the murders, so he can't be the person supposedly referred to by Boogie. And none of the other men listed as a person of interest in this case are a brother of Boogie Hilton. Neville claims that at this time, Wayne Hilton drove a green E.J. Holden with a white top, and an E.H. Holden of the same colour. It does stand out to me that Mr. Shum can't pick this man out of a lineup, and yet can remember all the main identifying features of two of this man's supposed vehicles. In any case, he said that at one point Mr. Hilton asked him what he should do, and that he instructed him to give himself up. Edith O'Neill knew several members of the Laurie family. She claims that in 1974, she was sharing a flat with Donnie Laurie and his wife Laura, and that Wayne Hilton lived in the flat next door to them. In a 1989 statement, Ms O'Neill recalled an incident which she says occurred sometime towards the end of 1974. She said Donnie Laurie and Wayne Hilton had come home from being out all night and not long later she saw Wayne in the backyard of his flat cleaning out the boot of his car which she described as being pale green. She thought the vehicle was Donnie's so she found it odd Boogie was cleaning out Donnie's car. She says she went down to see what he was doing and saw him removing the carpet from the boot of the car. When asked what he was doing, she says he told her to mind her own business. She claims she saw a large stain on the carpet that could have been blood. Given the testimony of Mrs O'Neill at the inquest, it's hard to know what to believe. She claimed that despite living in the area since the murders occurred, she couldn't recall ever hearing anything about them, the discovery of the bodies, or seeing anything on the news. She had zero memory of ever giving her statement, though conceded it was signed by her so she must have done so and just didn't remember. Finally, she also asserted that, although they'd separated four or five times throughout their marriage, her and Jimmy currently lived together, and that they'd never discussed the murders, even after both being subpoenaed to attend the inquest. Now, that I just find unbelievable. I'm not sure how old she was at the inquest, and I could maybe be convinced that her memory had deteriorated, but the notion that her and Jimmy didn't discuss the case after him being subpoenaed even in light of her being supplied a copy of her previous statement at that time, I I just can't fathom that. Like, uh, your partner walks through the door one day like, hi, honey, how was your day? Oh, you know, nothing special, was just subpoenaed to appear at a coronal inquest into a double murder from 40 years ago. Oh, really? Me too. Huh. How about that? I'm going to go watch the footy. Like, uh uh-uh. Perhaps even more unbelievable was her claim that she was unaware her husband was a person of interest in the case, until she saw it on the news after the second inquest began, even though the persons of interest had been publicly named the year before in 2012 at the preliminary hearing. One of the more interesting witnesses in the case is Kim Sandercock. In her 1989 statement to police, she recalled an incident she said took place in mid-1984. She claimed that late one afternoon she had gone by herself to the Crown Hotel in Toowoomba. 
She was sitting at a table alone when a woman she didn't know approached her. She described this woman as being in her late 20s, but looking much older than what she was. She claims the woman proceeded to tell her a lengthy story about a man that Kim believes she must have been living with. The woman says her name is Ellen, but won't reveal her last name. Over the next hour, Ellen proceeds to tell her about the murder of two nurses which happened some years ago at Murphy's Creek. Miss Sandercock says she tried repeatedly to get the woman to stop recounting the story, as she kept going into graphic detail and was frightening her. She claimed Ellen was quite intoxicated and, quote, spoke about what happened quite precisely and the woman was almost in a trance-like state, end quote. Perhaps most striking is the supposed claim by Ellen of being present at the time of the murders, though she had not taken part in the killings, she said. She stated that the girls had been killed by, quote, Alan Laurie and one of the Hilton boys, end quote. Miss Sandercock stated that Ellen had not deliberately revealed the names, but that they had slipped out during the conversation. She didn't know the men Ellen were alleging were responsible for the murders, but had since heard a lot about a man named Alan Laurie, who she now knew to have the nickname Shorty. Which, if it was the person of interest Alan Laurie, of the many Alan Laurie's, that she came to know of, then yes, his nickname was Shorty. But she doesn't indicate that she would have any reason to believe that, of the multiple Alan Laurie's, that that was the particular one that Ellen was referring to. Maybe Kim, or even Ellen, didn't know that there was at least three, and possibly four, Alan Laurie's of roughly the same age that lived in that area at the time. In any case... Kim goes on to say that Ellen told her that the two men had picked up two nurses, though didn't say from where, and revealed that while the men had planned on raping the women, murder had not originally been part of the plan. They were to be taken to a scrub or creek, and Ellen apparently did mention Murphy's Creek. Ellen said that one of the men had been driving, with one of the girls sitting in the front seat. The other girl was seated between herself, being Ellen, and the second man in the back seat. The man driving was slapping and pulling the hair of the girl in the front seat and when she tried to escape the vehicle, she was struck from behind by the man in the back seat with a bar. According to Ellen, this caused the nurse to fall forward as she bled profusely from the back of her head, apparently dead. The girl in the back seat began to scream, at which point they gagged her. They supposedly dumped the dead body of the first nurse in the bush, and at some point the second nurse had made an attempt to escape. Miss Sandercock said Ellen had told her that when one of the men caught her, this second girl was killed, quote, by being hit with something, and that they bashed her head in. She said they did the last one worse than the first because she was the one giving them all the trouble. After the second nurse was dead, she said they dragged her body back near the other one. End quote. Kim Sandercock claimed that she'd never informed anyone about her meeting with this woman at the hotel because she was scared she might be killed herself if she shared what she'd been told. She was called to give evidence at the 2013 inquest, but claimed that as a result of having consumed large doses of painkillers, over an extended period of time, that she no longer had any memory of these events. I could possibly be persuaded that she could have lost some of the details of this event due to a heavy consumption of opioids, but the idea that the whole event is blank is, again, asking for a stretch. I also have some more information to share with you later that makes her notion of a complete and utter memory lapse difficult to believe. The coroner does point out that the evidence presented in Kim Sandercock's 1989 statement was consistent with the autopsy evidence that Lorraine had likely died from as little as one strike to the back of her head, and that Wendy had died due to many blows to the front, top, and sides of her head. The coroner confirmed that this information had not been publicly available at the time of this 1989 interview. The next witness is a man by the name of Desmond Edmonston, who the findings indicate came forward in 2013 as a result of the media reports covering the inquest. He said he socialised with people from Toowoomba, including some suspected of being involved in these murders. He claimed that he had received information regarding the murders from Larry Charles. The Charles family are related to the Hilton family through marriage. Mr Edmonston claims that while he was travelling with Larry Charles and two other men named Willie Baker and Laurie Howe, that they had stayed at a caravan park in Rockhampton. The coroner's report lists this as having been late in the 1970s, However, Eric states in his book that Mr Edmonston specifically stated it had been 1978. It was Mr Edmonston's claim that Larry Charles became upset during this stay and told him it was because it was two years since those girls got killed at Murphy's Creek. He claims that Mr Charles told him that Boogie Hilton, Shorty Laurie, Jimmy O'Neill and Donnie Laurie had picked up two girls and had taken them into the bush at Murphy's Creek to party. He claimed the girls had had sex with Boogie and Shorty, 
but refused to have sex with any of the other men, and that as a result, Boogie assaulted one of the girls and invited one of the rejected men to do the same. It was apparently at this point that the other girl ran into the bush screaming, and Boogie and Shorty went after her. Mr Edmonston claims that Larry Charles said that he, Jimmy, and Donnie threw the other girl in the car and drove around looking for the one who had run off. After finding her, they returned to Murphy's Creek, and soon after, Ungi Laurie and Des Hilton apparently arrived with a number of other men, with Larry supposedly telling Mr Edmonston that they all, quote, took turns raping and bashing the two girls, end quote. Larry had said the girls were tied up against a tree unconscious before Boogie Hilton and Donnie Laurie walked up and wailed into them with sticks. Larry apparently told him that all the men had made a pact that if any of them opened their mouths about what had occurred, the others would kill that individual. It was Mr Edmondson's claim that about 15 years ago, Larry Charles had phoned him and told him he had confessed to a priest about what had happened. He claimed that Mr Charles had committed suicide the day after this phone call took place. One thing I noticed with the testimony of Mr Edmondson, if Eric is correct that Desmond indicated that this admission initially occurred during a trip in 1978, the dates wouldn't match up. 1978 wouldn't mark two years since the women had been murdered, as was supposedly what Larry Charles had said. Rather, 1978 would mark two years since the remains had been found, and four years since the murders. If this event was so traumatic for Mr Charles, the implication from Mr Edmonston being that Larry was so tortured by his guilt that he later committed suicide, you would think he would know exactly how long it had been since the event occurred. In his report, the coroner points out that the story provided by Mr Edmonston is not consistent with the autopsy evidence. There is no evidence that both women were beaten with sticks, nor is there evidence that the women were repeatedly raped, or at least not at the time and location that would be consistent with the story in question. The coroner's final concerns were that Mr Edmonston could not offer reasonable explanation why Larry Charles had made this confession to himself, or why he had waited over 35 years to share this information with anyone. With regard to Desmond Edmonston's testimony, the coroner concluded, quote, I don't accept him as a witness of truth, end quote. Another witness is Walter Laurie. I was really torn as to whether to include the information from this witness, but I will include it because it's in the coroner's report and a part of the official record, but it'll become apparent pretty quickly why the coroner himself puts zero weight into this information. Walter was 10 years old when the nurses went missing in 1974. In the year 2000, he gave a statement to police in which he claimed that at the age of 10, his mother and father he is one of Shorty Laurie's brothers, took him to a bush track at Murphy's Creek one night. He claims that his father and uncle walked through a fence into the bush while his mother stayed in the car. He said that in the bush, his father and uncle met up with Shorty Laurie, Ungi Laurie, Boogie Hilton, Donnie Laurie, Larry Charles, Jimmy O'Neill, Kingsley Hunt and Willie Baker. While they were there, Artie Laurie and some other men arrived in Artie's car. He says he also saw Shorty Laurie's blue E.H. Holden and Ungi Laurie's green H.R. Holden present. Walter goes on to claim that in the clearing were two women laying on the ground on their backs about three feet apart. He says they were semi-naked. He claimed, quote, I remember that some of the guys that were there were making love to the two girls. I definitely remember that Larry Charles was making love to the girl on the right side. At one stage, one of the girls stood up and Ungi knocked her back down. I remember her saying words to the effect of, no more, no more, please. She was begging them to stop, end quote. He claims he asked Shorty Laurie what was going on and that Shorty told him to mind his own business before getting up and hitting him, knocking Walter off the log he was sitting on. This, according to Walter, resulted in a fight breaking out between their father and Shorty, which one of the other boys had to step in to stop. Apparently at this point, his mother came into the clearing and the two of them left. Walter concluded by saying, quote, I believe that Shorty would have been involved in killing the two girls because of what I have heard through family and other friends. I know that Shorty is very violent and had a very short temper. I don't know for sure that Shorty killed the girls, and he never told me he did, but I know he would be capable of doing it. He would be capable of doing something cruel. I've never told police about this because I've been too scared for my safety. I'm telling police now about what I saw because I do not want these murdering bastards to get away with it. End quote. According to the coroner, Walter Laurie gave evidence at the inquest consistent with his previous statement, although he now added that the two girls had black skirts and white tops on at the party. 
He also said he had suffered severe head injuries in a car accident and had done, quote, memory work as part of his rehabilitation. He clarified that he could not remember these matters prior to the rehabilitation. So, where to start? Uh, there's a few glaring issues with Walter Lurie's claims. Firstly, the fact that he acknowledges that he had no memory of these events prior to undergoing memory work, which from what I can tell is just another name for hypnosis, a practice considered notoriously unreliable for recalling memories. Uh, not to mention that this process is undertaken after a car accident that he himself said resulted in severe head injuries. Second, his description of the outfits worn by the women in his recollection, the black skirts and white tops, doesn't match what we know the girls to have been wearing prior to their deaths or what they were found in. I also find it inconceivable that this many people, I mean, he lists 12, although speaks vaguely of others as well, indicating more than 12. So at least 12, including himself and his parents, are present at this site, and yet no one who remained behind and witnessed the murder has cracked and confessed or thrown the rest under the bus. Not likely. And finally, as the coroner states in his findings, quote, Even among these sociopaths, it is inconceivable that a mother and father would take their 10-year-old son to a party where two women were being openly and repeatedly defiled, as Mr. Laurie claims. I consider this evidence completely unreliable. End quote. If you were a woman attacked by any man or group of men in Toowoomba or the surrounding area, please consider sharing your story with police. Details of your crime could possibly corroborate details of this crime. People, locations, events, patterns of behaviour, the smallest piece of evidence can make all the difference. If you or someone you know has any information you believe may be relevant to the murders of Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 000. The reward offered for information in this case is $250,000. And a reminder, you can remain entirely anonymous when collecting rewards. In tomorrow's episode, we'll wrap up our last few inquest witnesses, including testimony from the two surviving persons of interest. We'll look at the findings from the forensic review undertaken for the inquest, as well as critically analysing all of the findings at the conclusion of the inquest. So don't miss tomorrow's episode as we continue our dive into Lorraine and Wendy's case. If you're enjoying the show and haven't already, please subscribe to Reward Offit on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your true crime fix. And if you're feeling generous, we'd really appreciate if you'd leave us a positive review. As the new kid on the block, every little bit does help with the algorithms, which will assist us in getting these cases heard by more people. I know that even so far, this case is a dense one, but hang in there. Remember, we need to know these cases inside and out in order to accurately analyse the information and identify the right questions to ask. So we have to take the necessary time to bring you up to speed. My biggest challenge in writing these episodes for Lorraine and Wendy's case has been trying to format the immense amounts of information in such a way that you, the listener, with zero prior knowledge of the case, can hopefully not only understand the complexities of it, but usefully absorb the information in such a way that allows you to perform your own critical analysis of what's being presented. It's difficult for me to accurately evaluate how well I'm doing that at any given point, though, because I'm working with the totality of the available information as I write the episodes. So firstly, I wanted to quickly thank my partner, as well as my mum and my dad, for blindly listening to these episodes to try and ensure the information is palatable. Secondly, if you're feeling a little confused or need something clarified, please reach out and I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find us at reward underscore offered on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, and I'm creating a group on Facebook so we can discuss this case and future cases as a community. It's called Reward Offered Case Discussions, so please join us and let us know your thoughts on the case thus far. Again, if you have specific information you believe is relevant to the case, call Crime Stoppers. Don't share it on our socials. Our email is rewardofferedpod at gmail.com if you'd rather reach out that way. I'm still working on a couple of ideas to act as more thorough visual accompaniments for the podcast, so until I work out where we're heading with those, our socials are the place to find any photos, links, or media mentioned. And with that, it's a wrap. We'll see you tomorrow for the next episode of Reward Offered. Thanks for listening.
episode two, folks. Bam. What do you want to bet the neighbors stop bloody mowing their lawn or something? In his book, Eric states they believe the gemstone to be Chrysoprase. Chrysoprase? I'm going to have to check that. Pause. Chrysoprase. Chrysoprase. It will never be good enough. I've heard.